telling you, Somerset, Williamsburg, if, if that was half as good there as it was here, I'm telling you, it has already been good to be at church today. Has it not? Let's just put our hands together. Just, man, that was good. I had a young lady, Kennedy, just came forward just a moment ago and gave her heart and life to Jesus. And that was incredible. Yeah. All right, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, like I said before, old timers would say, hey, we could leave right now and say it's been good to be here. But what they taught me was they never left when they said that. So we're gonna stay and we're gonna do what we came to do, bless God, <laughs> amen. No. Hey, listen, if you're a guest of ours, I'm telling you, this is what I love about our church. I mean, it is just, this is a place where we just want God to do what God wants. Uh, to do whenever God wants to do it, however he wants to do it. Uh, today, uh, we are in the second week of a message that we started last week, a series called The Future of Faith. And, and we started talking about how the scriptures uh, places the responsibility on each generation for the future faith of the next generation, that God charges in the word of God, God charges each generation to take responsibility for the future faith of the next generation. And, and we talked about how if we're we're going to do this as a church and if we're going to do this as believers if we're going to take responsibility for the future of faith uh, then we've got to begin to pay attention to what's happening in our culture we've got to start listening and we've got to start watching and and we've got to be informed to know what do we need to let go of what do we not need to let go of what needs to change what doesn't need to change what's the best path forward in order to reach the next generation uh, in it as it relates to faith and so that's what this series is all about it's about paying attention to the culture and then it's also about learning to think generationally. Uh, just not thinking immediate about what's going on in our lives and just not thinking about what's ultimate, you know, one day out there and, and eternity someday, but thinking generationally and understanding that for all of us, our life is bigger than our lifetime. Our life is bigger than our lifetime. That means that the influence that you have in your life can extend beyond your life. Now, I think that, that that's incredible to think about that the influence that you and I have, it can extend beyond our lifetime. And when we get this right, when we get this right in the church, when we get this right in our own personal lives, the scriptures say that we have the ability to have our influence echoed into the third or fourth generation. That means that whenever we influence a child, we can also influence that child's future child and their children's children. Uh, that the echo of our influence can linger long into the future. That whenever you impact your son or daughter, you also are influencing your sons and daughters, future sons and daughters, and their future sons and daughters. Because our life is bigger than our lifetime. And so we are supposed to walk by faith in such a way that we can shape the faith of the next generation. And so we talked about last week how God has always been concerned with future faith. And, and in order to further faith into the future, God created two guardians uh, where faith could be pushed into the future. Two guardians where personal faith could become generational faith. And we talked about the family and the church. Those, those are the two guardians that make sure that faith gets pushed into the future. Uh, God's plan is for parents to take responsibility for the future faith of their children. That parents are just not supposed to raise good kids, but are supposed to raise good adults, and more importantly, supposed to raise future men and women of faith. That parents are to take responsibility for the future faith of their children. And then there's the church. 
Uh, it's not either or. It's not that families push it off on the church and say, hey, you know, make sure my child, you know, has faith in the future. And it's not as though the church cops out and say, no, it's all about the family. This is both and working together. It's the family and the church working together in order to push faith into the future. And so what that means is that every parent and every grandparent and every person who's a follower of Jesus and consequently a part of the local church, every single one of us should be incredibly interested and invested in the future of faith. If you're a mom, a dad, a grandmother, a grandfather, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're part of the church, you should be interested in the faith of the next generation. It's an important thing and it should be important. It should feel important to us because all the data is suggesting that the church in the, in the, you know, the United States of America, that it's growing older and it's getting smaller. It's growing older and it's getting smaller. And the younger the generation is in this country, the less Christian that generation is. So what that says to me and what that should say to all of us is that we have work to do. We have a lot of work to do because what's happened in other places and what's happened in other churches and other families, we don't want that to happen here. Because the two youngest generations, the millennials and Generation Z, they're the least Christian generation that's alive today. And many of them have left behind their coloring book version of Jesus and they're looking for an adult version of Jesus that holds up under the weight of real life, that holds up under the weight of important big questions. And so that's where our responsibility comes in as families and as the church to make sure that we are standing up at a time where we need to stand up and we are pushing faith into the future generation. Because here's the important thing for us all to remember, and we'll talk more about this next week. The next generation isn't the problem. They are the solution. Oftentimes, older generations, they, you know, they talk about the younger generation, they complain about this, complain about that, and they talk about them like, you know, they're pests or like a little fly that needs to be swatted. And it's like, well, the whole world would be better if it's those young people. It's, so, it's the teenagers, it's the 20-somethings, it's the millennials, it's the Generation Z. And what we've got to understand is the next generation isn't the problem, they are the solution. This is how we're supposed to think about the next generation. The next generation, like all of us, have been marked by the world that they were born into and raised in. So we can criticize them, we can blame them, or we can invest in them lead them and work with them in order to influence the future of faith. I've heard sermons over and over again growing up where pastors complain about the next generation and about their lack of morals or their lack of commitment and so on and so forth. And we can do that if we want to. We can criticize them, we can blame them, or like I said, we can invest in them, lead them and partner with them in order to secure the future of faith. Now. In the New Testament, there is a guy that teaches us a lot about investing in the next generation. Uh, there's a gentleman who models what it really looks like, I think, to live life with the future of faith in mind, and his name is Paul. And Paul, I think, did more for the future of faith than any person in the New Testament. And he learned this ethic from his Jewish faith. Because in the Jewish faith, God had told moms and dads to pass on their children to their sons and daughters. But even beyond that, the Jewish faith valued mentoring the next generation. Even if they weren't your children, they were somebody's children. And you felt a responsibility to mentor the children of the next generation, to mentor the teenagers of the next generation, to mentor the 20-somethings of the next generation. And so that was a big part of Jewish faith, was mentoring the next generation. Even Moses, 
Moses, one of the best known of all the Jewish people. Jethro, his father-in-law, had mentored Moses. And then Moses, in turn, mentored Joshua. And Joshua led the nation into the land of promise. And then there were stories about Elijah, who mentored Elisha. And Elisha went on to perform twice as many miracles as what Elijah had ever performed. So what he learned in his Jewish faith, he carried over into his Christian faith. And there was one particular person that Paul influenced that I think is more known than all the other people that Paul influenced. It's somebody that probably most of you have heard of before. He was a teenager. We don't think of him as a teenager, but he was a teenager. And we pick up his story in Acts chapter 16. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. And just to give you some context, uh, Paul has already gone on what is referred to as the first missionary journey. Uh, he, went with si he went with Barnabas and they went around to all these little towns and cities around the Mediterranean and they started telling people about Jesus, that Jesus had died for their sins, that Jesus was buried and that Jesus had been raised from the dead and they can be forgiven of their sins and be brought into the family of God. And so they went around to all these places and they started churches. Three years later, Paul decides he wants to go back to those places. So he starts what's referred to as his second missionary journey. And so that's what's happening here. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy, and maybe you've heard of Timothy before. This is where Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer. That means she was a Christian, but whose father was a Greek. And so as Paul begins his second missionary journey, he comes to this, to this region where he meets a young teenager who most scholars believe that he was probably 16. He could have been as young as 15, but probably no older than 16 or 17. So just for the sake of what most people agree on, let's just say that Timothy was a 16-year-old. And so here's the 16-year-old that Paul meets at the beginning of his second missionary journey. Timothy's mom was Jewish in her ethnicity, and she was a Christian in her faith. So at some point, she had been converted to follow Jesus, probably three years before when Paul came through that very area. Not only was his mother a Christian, but we know from some other passages that his mother's mother was a Christian. Timothy's grandmother was also a follower of Jesus. And again, she was probably converted to Christ about three years earlier when Paul came through this same region on his first missionary journey. And so when he came through this area, he meets Timothy, a 16-year-old. And it says, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Uh, there was something about Timothy that stood out. Uh, when people looked at Timothy, they said, you know what, this guy has a promising future. Uh, this kid's going somewhere. Uh, this kid's got a lot of potential. And, and it's at this moment where the believers in the church and the church looks at this 16-year-old and says, hey, this guy's going to do something. This guy's got a bright future. God has a plan for this kid's life. And God's going to use this kid undoubtedly in big ways to make a big difference in the world. We should stop right here and ask, I wonder why they could say such a thing. I wonder why they could say such a thing about a 16-year-old. That Look at this 16-year-old. He's different. He stands out among his peers. He's going places. He's got a bright future. And it's because of the two guardians. It's the two guardians that was active in Timothy's life. It's because of his mother and his grandmother. They had passed their faith on to him. And then the church came along and helped to disciple Timothy. But primarily, it began in his family. It began with his mother and his grandmother. And even Paul referenced this later on. He's going to write a letter to Timothy. We call it the book of 2 Timothy. And here's what he says about it. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy. 
He says, this is what people's been saying about you from the very beginning, that you have, you have, a, you have a sincere faith. There's something special about you. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. He says, Timothy, what is in you started with your grandmother and it was passed on to your mother and from your mother, it was passed on to you. They taught you the scriptures from the time that you were little. They taught you the Jewish scriptures and they have taught you about their Christian faith. And now you are a follower of Jesus. Your grandmother and mother did what families are supposed to do. They took their personal faith and they turned it into generational faith. And because they were doing their responsibilities as a mother and a grandmother, as the only Christians in the home, as they were passing their faith on to Timothy, the church came alongside and did what the church was supposed to do. And so the church looks at Timothy and says, Paul, this kid is special. You need to meet Timothy. And that was the first thing they wanted to talk to Paul about was a 16 year old. Can you imagine? Because they were interested in the next generation. When they looked at Timothy, they saw the future of faith. When Eunice and Lois looked at their grandson and son, they saw the future of faith. And he said, Timothy, the faith that's in you was first in your mother. And it was first beyond her in your grandmother. So Timothy, there's something special about you. And the church saw something special in Timothy. And so they told Paul, they said, Paul, you need to meet this guy. And when Paul met Timothy, it says that Paul wanted to take him along the journey. I don't know how long they talked, maybe a day, two days, a week, a couple weeks, we just don't know. But when Paul talked to Timothy, you know what? He said, you're right, there's something special about this kid and I want him to go with me on my missionary journey. Now, I just wanna say this was a big deal. And let me talk to those of you who feel like you're busy. Let me talk to those of you who feel like maybe you have more on your plate than you know what to do with. Maybe you're trying to build your business. Maybe you're trying to keep all your accounts you know, up to date. Maybe you're just trying to get all your extracurricular activities in, but you feel like you got a lot going on. You got a lot of responsibilities. Your schedule's pretty packed. I think that's how the Apostle Paul felt. At this particular point in Christian history, he's almost single-handedly out there trying to expand the church. I mean, he's like a startup entrepreneur. He's trying to get this whole thing started. And so he's got a lot to do in a short time to do it. So he felt like, hey, I got a lot on my plate. I don't have a lot of time. I got things to do. He was type A, he was check the box, task oriented, kind of get it done guy. That was Paul. So here, here's the thing I want you to think about. Was it convenient for Paul to want to slow down and ask a 16 year old to go with him on perhaps one of the most important trips he's ever been on in his entire life? Probably not convenient. Would it slow him down to have to look over his shoulder, have to make sure you know, the kid was okay, make sure you know, that you know, nobody was doing anything that they weren't supposed to back there behind him? Was it inconvenient? I'm sure it was. Was it gonna slow his productivity down? I'm sure it would. But yet he invited Timothy to go along with him. Could Paul have said, I'm too busy. I don't have enough time. This is too important. Maybe another season, maybe Timothy, you need to grow up a little bit. You're not ready. You need to stay, you know, and just serve at the church for a little bit longer and I'll circle back around. No, but when Paul met Timothy, he saw the future. He saw the future of faith. Now, let me just say a word to those of us who are, you know, a little bit older and we've got people coming behind us. If you're a middle schooler and you're in the room, you have people coming behind you. They're called grade schoolers. If you're a high schooler, you've got people coming behind you. They're called grade schoolers and middle schoolers. Hey, if you're in college, 
You got people coming behind you. If you're 20 something, 30 something, 40 something, 50 something, 60, 70, 80 something, you got people coming behind you. It matters what you see. It matters what I see when I look at the next generation. When Paul looked at Timothy, he saw not an inconvenience. He saw the future of faith. He saw something that was worth his time. And that's what he's going to give Timothy. He's going to give him his time. He's going to give him access. He's going to give him opportunity to learn, opportunity to ask questions, opportunity to observe. Listen, he was going to give Timothy a place on the team and a seat at the table. Let me tell you where churches go wrong in our country. When we fail to give the next generation a place on the team and a seat at the table. Most churches that are dying plateaued or in decline, maybe perhaps you've recognized one of those churches throughout your life, been a part of one of those churches at some point in your life or know somebody who's in a church like that right now. There's so many churches that don't wanna give the next generation a seat at the table and a place on the team. The only way you get a seat at the table and a place on the team is if you agree and think like the oldest person at the table and the oldest person on the team. Otherwise, you don't get a seat at the table and you don't get a place on the team. But Paul, the most important Christian in the world at this time, looks at a 16-year-old and says, you want to be on the team? You want a seat at the table? Come on. And he teaches us so many things about how to push faith forward. If we don't continue to be a church that is willing to give the next generation not only a place on the team, but a seat at the table, the big boys table, the big girls table, the table. If we don't continue to be open to that, we're going to do what other people have done. We're going to leave the next generation behind. So it says that Paul wanted to take him along the journey, so he circumcised him. Talk about an ordination service. I mean, whew. Hey, I got good news and bad news, Timothy. The good news is I want you to come along with me. Great, that's awesome. What's the bad news, Paul? You gotta have surgery. What kind of surgery? What? What? I was telling the boys the story last night. They always ask me on Saturday night. We all four of us were downstairs and they said, Daddy, what are you gonna preach about tomorrow? And I, I was giving them the story and I got to this point and, and I said, and Paul circumcised him. And they said, what's that? And I explained that. And Shepherd looks up and says, is that what you did to me? <laughs> no, the doctor, son. I encourage you to go into ministry, but that's, it was different then. It was different then. I mean, this was the price of admission. Now think about this. I mean, I, I, I think that this could be a sermon series in and of itself. And, and I was so overwhelmed by what was in this text this week that, that I just, I, I can't tell you everything. That, but there are so many important lessons that Paul, I think, is teaching us about how to interact with the next generation and how to raise up the next generation. Because I think that he is teaching us exactly how to bring the next generation along. One thing that he's doing is... He is trying to give Timothy the absolute best opportunity to succeed. 
And he explains to him, he says, you need to be circumcised because you're going to go to some Jewish communities and they're going to be more open to what you say. They're going to be more open to your leadership if you are like them, if you are circumcised. So he was trying to give him the best opportunity to succeed. And we've got to do the same. We've got to do whatever it takes to give the next generation the opportunity to succeed. But more than that, and I think even more profound than that, here's what I think Paul is teaching Timothy. He's teaching him an important lesson that all of us can apply to our lives wherever the Holy Spirit may make application. In the previous chapter, the leaders of the church had just gotten together and decided that Christians, Gentile Christians, did not have to obey the law of Moses to become a follower of Jesus. That is, that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised in order to be Christian. And they had decided that in an official way and sent a letter out to all the churches in Antioch and all the churches around. And people were glad to hear it, especially the Gentile men. But here is Paul asking this biracial, part Jew, part Gentile kid to be circumcised. And we should just stop for a moment and say, why would he do that? And I think there's a lesson in this. Timothy could have said, I don't have to do that, Paul. We heard about what the church decided. I'm free not to be circumcised. But I think here's what Paul's saying. Timothy, there are times that you have to forfeit your freedom for the benefit of somebody else. Sometimes you're free to do something. Sometimes you're free not to do something. But sometimes it is best for you to lay down your freedom for the benefit of somebody else. And I think that that is a lesson that the 21st century church could learn to wrestle with in a fresh new way. We are free people. We have been set free by grace. But just because there are some things we have been set free to do, doesn't mean that we should do them when we consider other people. And not only that, I think he's teaching him, hey, life's not easy, punk. <laughs> Ministry's tough. It's painful. And, and I'm, you know, I mean, I'm telling you that you could just go on and on about this. But I think, again, something worthwhile often begins with doing something difficult and painful. That's a great lesson to impart in the next generation. Something worthwhile often begins with something difficult and painful. So they ordained Timothy. They laid hands on him. They prayed over him. They, they spoke about his giftedness verbally and out loud. And they predicted a wonderful forecast for his future. And I think, again, this is instructive for us about how we deal with the next generation. Moms and dads, you should speak a forecast of faith over your children. Adults, we should speak a forecast of faith over the next generation and remind them that God's got a plan for their life, that God wants to use them, that God's going to do big things in their life, that God wants to use them to make a difference. Their life matters to God and their life matters to the kingdom of God. And we should speak these lofty things over them. Life's just not about getting a career and getting a good career and getting a degree and going out there, getting married, having kids and all that's good and wonderful. But God has a plan for your life, whether you get married or not, whether you have the career you dreamed of or not, whether you finish it up or you don't, God's got a plan for you that wherever you end up, whatever you end up doing, God's going to use you. God wants to use you to make a difference and you are important. If we would speak over the next generation, I wonder how the culture may be just a bit different. Instead of getting up and preaching about them and complaining about them, Maybe if we spoke faith over them, maybe we wouldn't be where we are today. And it says, so they traveled from town to town. Paul and Silas, 
They left town and there was Timothy limping slowly behind them as they leave town. And Timothy gets a front row seat to one of the most influential men, not only in Christian history, but, but all of Western civilization. They leave there and you can read the book of Acts, but it's all kind of complicated. And then when you put all the letters of Paul together and you try to piece together the sequence of it all, but when they leave there, they go to Philippi. And in Philippi, Paul and Silas preach. They preach the gospel. They, they tell people about Jesus. And then they're arrested and they're beaten and they're thrown into prison. Guess who got to be there to see that? Timothy. Timothy got to see what boldness looks like. He got to see what courage in the face of violence looks like. He got to see what persecution looked like. He got to see what suffering looked like. He got to see what pain looked like up close and personal. He got to be there and he was there along with Luke because Luke's recording the book of Acts. So Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into jail and there's Luke and Timothy and they're watching the whole thing. You talk about an education. And that's why Paul brought him along. There were some things that Timothy needed to know. There were some things that the next generation needed to learn. And so Paul and Silas at midnight, instead of licking their wounds or feeling sorry for themselves or complaining or quitting, they sang and they praised God and God set them free. And Timothy was there to hear that story and to see that play out firsthand. After they left Philippi, they went to Thessalonica, perhaps the greatest church in the New Testament. And Timothy went with them. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke helped start the church at Thessalonica. And then there was a group of people that got upset in Thessalonica and ran Paul and all of his friends out of town. And then they went to Berea. And guess who's still with him? Timothy. He's getting to see all of this. He's getting to experience everything that Paul is experiencing. He's not back there on the back row. He's not separated so far that he has no idea what's going on. No, he's right there with Paul the whole time. Paul leaves Berea and decides that he's going to go to Athens. And he leaves Silas and Timothy in Berea for a while. And then later on, Silas and Timothy, they go and meet Paul in Athens. And when he gets to Athens, Paul does the most incredible thing. Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica and says, hey, Timothy, I need you to go back. I need you to check on the church. I need you to teach the church some things. And then I want you to bring a report back to me. He asked a 16-year-old to go check on one of his churches. He asked a 16-year-old, I want you to go teach that church. And I want you to bring a report back to me. Was Timothy ready? Probably not. Was Silas probably a better candidate? Maybe so. Was Luke a better bet? Maybe so. But Paul knew that if Timothy was going to be on the team, he had to be part of the team. And so he sends him back to Thessalonica. He gives him a job to do. He gives him an important job to do. And so he goes back to Thessalonica, checks on things, brings a report back to Paul in Corinth. He stays with Paul in Corinth for about a year and a half. In Corinth, if you don't know anything about the church in Corinth, it was a jacked up, crazy bunch of people. Kind of like the Creek Church. Uh, I, I mean, they just, they had a lot of things going on. I mean, they were just people. I mean, we have issues. You know, we just got lots of things, you know, that, that we're embarrassed about and that we struggle with. And I mean, they were just, there was a lot of things going on at the Corinthian church. But guess who got to see all that and experience all that? Timothy was there. And while Paul was in Corinth, he writes his magnum opus. He, he writes his, you know, his masterpiece of theology, what we call the book of Romans. And at the end of the book of Romans, here's what Paul writes at the end of that book. He says, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you. This is incredible. Leaders, if you're a leader, if you're a parent, there's so much practical application in this. He elevates Timothy 
in the sight of the current generation. He not only gave him responsibility, but he is establishing his authority. He's saying, hey, this is my coworker. This is not my errand boy. This is just not somebody who's around to do what I don't want to do. No, he's my coworker. And here's the thing. Paul didn't look at the next generation as a project. He saw them as peers. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Even more so, when you read through the New Testament, you're going to find that Paul kind of lists Timothy as a co-sponsor or a co-author of many of his letters. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians. Timothy is listed right there at the beginning of those letters as co-sponsor of the letter. Paul is elevating him in the eyes of the current generation to say, hey, not only is he the next generation, but he is a part of this generation. And he's giving him a seat at the table. He's giving him a position on the team. So Paul, he ends up going to Ephesus and he's gonna spend over two years there. He's gonna spend more time than he's ever spent anywhere else in Ephesus. And Timothy goes with him. And it's a great church, great story you can read about in the book of Acts. There was a riot, there was a book burning. I mean, all the things that goes into having a great revival. I mean, it was right there in Ephesus. I, I mean, and Paul spent two years there. And then at the end of those two years, right before he gets ready to leave, he sends Timothy, he says, I want you to go to Macedonia and, and, and prepare for my arrival. He says, I need you to stop by Corinth. You know, they're immature, they're fighting with each other. They're kind of all mixed up on, you know, some spiritual stuff and it's got real practical implications. I need you to go, I need you to preach to them. I need you to correct them. I need you to go lead them. And Timothy's thinking, what? What do I know? How can I go, I'm, I'm a teenager. How can I go tell other people about how to live their life? I've not lived my life yet. I used to feel that way when I was, I, I didn't have kids. How can I talk to parents about raising their kids when I don't have kids? Because I feel like all the parents who have kids look at me and know I don't have kids and they're thinking, we'll wait and see. <laughs> Matter of fact, I had some of my own friends say, we'll wait and see. Sounds good, but we'll wait and see. And, and so he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you got a job to do and you just got to do it. Throws him out in the water and says, <laughs> sink or swim, pal. You better swim. And so he sends him to Corinth. And so in order, you know, to kind of pave the way, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes and says, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you, Timothy, my son. So he's called him a co-worker. He's called him a son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. And I love this. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. Now, let me give you a little bit of the backstory. The Corinthians, they were complaining and belly aching, and, you know, they had the pooch mouth, you know, just all sad because Paul wasn't going to come see us himself, you know, and, and, and they wanted Paul in person. And because Paul wasn't in person, they, they kind of felt snubbed. They kind of felt like, you know, nobody was caring for them, and, and no, nobody really, you know, had a heart for them. They're like, you know, we just don't want you to send anybody. We want you to be there. And Paul says, listen, I'm sending Timothy. And when he's up in front of you, He'll remind you of me. And here's what Paul was saying. When you listen to him, you're listening to me because my influence is flowing through him. And so he's saying, I'm not the only person for the platform. I'm not the only person for the state. I'm not the only person that can pass to you, Corinthians. There's gotta be somebody else. And here he is. And when he speaks to you, it's my influence that's speaking through him. And so he says, you better listen to him. 
And you better imitate me. And the best way you can imitate me is by paying attention to him because he's learning it from me. And so he, he sends Timothy to Corinth. And so Paul, he, he leaves and goes to Macedonia and uh, he meets up with Timothy and then Timothy and Paul head to Jerusalem because Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem and Paul was convinced that he was gonna be arrested there and perhaps killed there. But Timothy decides, I'm gonna go with you, Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you to the end because they had this incredible relationship. And even though Paul knew that he could die there, he still took Timothy with him. And Paul is arrested in Jerusalem and he is beaten in Jerusalem. And because he's a Roman citizen, after he's arrested, Paul says, I wanna to go to Rome. I wanna appeal my case to Caesar. And the next time we find Paul, he's in Rome. And guess who's there? Timothy. Timothy's with him. But when Timothy gets to Rome, Paul looks at Timothy and says, Timothy, I hate to do this to you, but I gotta send you to Philippi. I gotta send you to Philippi to encourage that church and to check on them and to bring me back a report. He's a part of the team and he has a seat at the table. Paul saw Timothy as a son and a brother. It wasn't enough just to see him as a brother and it wasn't enough just to see him as a son. He had to see him as a brother and a son for this thing to work. And if we're gonna mentor the next generation, they just can't be a son or a daughter. They've gotta be a brother and a sister. They're not a project, they are our peers. They are co-laborers. They are in it to win it right alongside of us. And that's how Paul models it for us. In AD 62, Paul is released from prison in Rome for just a short while. He travels back to Philippi, he meets up with Timothy. And then from Philippi, they travel to Ephesus. And while in Ephesus, Paul makes Timothy the pastor of Ephesus. That great church that had been influenced by people like Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. Church in Ephesus that would be attended once upon a time by Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, the disciple of Jesus, the author of the Gospel of John. This, this historic church, Paul makes Timothy the pastor. Then Paul leaves and goes back to Macedonia again. And he writes a letter to Timothy. First Timothy is what we call it. And he encouraged Timothy to have a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. He cheers him on. He said, Timothy, you need to stay in this. You need to hold on to a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Don't let go of it. And then in AD 67, Paul is arrested again. And this is kind of where we end it. Paul is arrested for the second time. And he's taken back to Rome. This time Nero is the emperor. And Paul knows that he's at the end of the road. Paul knows that he's not gonna be released from prison. Paul knows that Nero is gonna put him to death. He thinks back because that's what you do when you get to the end of your life. When you know that death is near, you think back over the course of your life and he thinks back to his most treasured relationship. He thinks back to Timothy. And he thinks back to how they've known each other for nearly 20 years. And facing death, the one thing that Paul knows that he has to do is to pick up his pen one last time and write Timothy a letter. To write his brother and his son a letter. And so he writes him 2 Timothy, 
A letter that's been preserved for us in the New Testament. And when you read it and you know that Paul is effectively on his deathbed and he writes to his most treasured relationship in all of life, it's packed with emotion. He tells Timothy, he says, I want you to fan the flame. Don't let your light burn out. My light is getting ready to go out, but don't let your light go out. Keep fanning the flame. Don't give in, Timothy, to the spirit of fear because God's given you the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. So, Timothy, I'm getting ready to walk on the stage, but I need you to stay on the stage, and I need you to be strong. I need you to stick with it. I don't need you to give in. You can't give up. I want you to guard that deposit that's been placed deep inside of you by your grandmother and your mother and by your church and by me. I want you to be like a soldier and I want you to be strong and I want you to fight the good fight of faith. I want you to be like an athlete and I want you to run to win. I want you to be like a farmer that tills the ground no matter how hard it is knowing that you're going to reap if you faint not. And he says things like this to him. He says, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. And listen to this. Now, 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 teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to read it with me, pass them on. Timothy, I'm stepping off. It's your time. It's your generation. My generation, we're stepping off the stage. Your generation, you're on the stage. But do not walk away until you bring somebody else along. Don't walk off until you pass it on. Do for somebody else what somebody else has done for you. Leverage your influence today for the sake of tomorrow. And he gives him advice. Flee evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Timothy, don't sabotage your future because of pleasure. Don't sabotage your future because you're power hungry. Don't, don't sabotage your future because you're greedy. Find some good people and do life with them. He says, you, you know all about my teaching. You know about my way of life. You know my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, endurance. You've seen my persecutions and sufferings. You know the things that have happened to me because you were there. So Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have heard, what you've learned, and what you've become convinced of. You know those from whom you learned it. What you've learned from your family, from your church, and from me. Don't walk away from it. Paul, his family, and his church taught him what to believe and how to behave. And the present generation's legacy, our generation's legacy, should be that we taught the next generation what to believe, how to behave, and why both matter. Where else will the next generation learn what Christian marriage looks like when a husband loves a wife and a wife loves a husband the way that Christ has loved both of them? Where else will they get a picture of Christian parenting that raises up sons and daughters of faith? Where else will they learn generosity and compassion and love and grace? Where else will they learn the non-negotiables of what they should believe and build their lives upon? 
that should be our legacy. But here's where we are. And this is where we ended. We live in a day when one generation wants brothers, but no fathers. And the other wants brothers, but no sons. In other words, if for all the ladies in the room, we live in a generation where all they want sisters and no mothers and the other generation wants sisters and no daughters. We want brothers to have fun with and we want brothers that won't correct us or advise us or counsel us or pull us aside and say, I'm concerned. Now we want brothers because brothers, that's kind of not what they do. We want brothers, but we don't want fathers because fathers, that's kind of what fathers do. And we don't want fathers. And then the older generation, they just want brothers. They don't have time for sons. If we're gonna reach the next generation, we have to learn how to see them as both our sons and our brothers, as our daughters and our sisters. I don't know where I would be without people who have done the same for me. Whether it was Jack, a Sunday school teacher, who would ask me to go out to eat on Sunday evenings and would just talk to me about things that I was interested in about the Bible. He would listen to my <laughs> objections and questions and complaints. People like Tim Mills, who invited me to come preach, who asked me to tag along on trips and conferences. And people who've, saw, who've seen me over the years as a brother and as a son that I could see as a brother and as a father. We gotta get this right in order to secure the future of faith. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us just to take application of this. For those of us who are adults and those of us who are high school students and middle school students, we have an opportunity to create a space in our life where we invest in the next generation. For a middle school student, it could be being a small group leader in Kids Creek. For a high school student, it could be helping to lead a group of middle school students. For the rest of us, it could be being group leaders to kids or students or mentoring or taking out to coffee or investing in someone. God, help us to have a heart for this. Help us to care about this. Pray, Lord, that what people have done for us, we will do for others. What Paul did for Timothy, we'll do for someone. In Jesus' name.